No, I just saw her ladyship, but go ahead. <laughs> go ahead. Hi, Krishna. Okay, so on behalf of the Krishna West team here in London, there you go. So on behalf of the Krishna West team here in London, I would like to welcome all of you to this special event tonight. Special because we have a very special guest. Uh, some of you know him as Dr. Howard Resnick. Some of you, most of you know him as His Holiness Sri Dayananda Daska Swami. Uh, but for those of you who don't already know him, whether here or, or watching live on Facebook, uh, he is one of the pioneering disciples of Srila Prabhupada and a key figure for the establishment and propagation of Krishna consciousness in the West. And of course, he is the visionary behind ISKCON's Krishna West project. And we here at Krishna West London are very grateful to him for taking some time away from his much anticipated Mahabharata project work to spend an evening with us today. And, and I would encourage all of you to make the most of this opportunity to, to ask many questions and benefit from his extensive experience, insight, and intellect. <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> so it's, it's going to be an interactive session. So I invite all of you to participate. Don't feel shy. Please ask questions as we go along. But please, uh, just to help us facilitate in an orderly fashion, please uh, raise your hands first before asking any questions. Or, or if you prefer, you can type your question in chat. And I'll monitor that. And we can pick them up in sequence as we go along. And when you're not asking questions, please uh, just keep your Zoom on mute so, so as to avoid any disruptions. So we'll get straight into it. Uh, the topic is going to be the notion of spiritual science. And I'll, I'll kick us off with, with the first question. Uh, so Acharyadev, uh, we typically view science as focused on objective demonstration and evidence, whereas we tend to see spirituality as as more concerned with, should I say, subjective experience and faith. And given these apparently conflicting methodologies, how can we understand the Bhagavad Gita's description of the process of self-realization as, as a spiritual science? Please, could you- Okay, okay. Uh, Ram Nanda, do you want to take that question? Or me, I'll take it. <laughs> so, um, First of all, thank you for the question. You very uh, nicely articulated a sort of an anachronistic old fashioned view that uh, not so many serious thinkers actually hold nowadays, but we'll go over it. There's a lag time. It's, for example, when um, in, in, let's say more serious academic philosophy or, or among, not just academic, because if you study the history certainly of the Western world, the, the academy, the university is often a century or so behind uh, the rest of the people that actually have some common sense. So uh, maybe I'll say a word about that and then I'll get into science. Uh, I'm not just obfuscating here, I'm actually getting to the point, but if you, if you look at the, the, the nature of the university, the Western university, which has existed for about a thousand years and um, roughly. So we often tend to associate universities with 
progressive knowledge, but history gives us a, a different picture. I mean, there certainly have been times when the universities were in the forefront of knowledge, expanding knowledge. And to some extent, universities still are in certain fields, but in terms of philosophy, not so much. Because if you look at the thousand year history of the university, for really about 80% of that time, or depending on which country in Europe you're talking about, England or France or Italy or Germany and so on. But let's say for at least three fourths of that time, uh, universities tended to be controlled by different churches, especially the Roman Catholic Church and then the Protestant Reformation, other churches. And so what we find is that the scientific revolution as it's so-called, and of course that, that name, like everything else in academia has been problematized. Someone needs to problematize the notion of problematizing. But anyway, so what we find is that the universities were actually lagging behind, seriously behind the scientific revolution. In fact, in the 1700s, you had this phenomenon of the European salons. I don't mean a place where sannyasis went to get their hair done, but I mean, the salons were these intellectual salons where uh, the leading intellectuals would gather and discuss. Uh, so why did they have these famous European gatherings, sort of almost like intellectual clubs? Because the leading minds in Europe couldn't get jobs in universities because the universities were so far behind in science among other fields uh, because of their commitment to a church dogma. Now, the philosopher Hegel said, and, and I, I agree with him on this point, that uh, history tends to move dialectically. And all that means is that uh, sort of the pendulum effect applied to history, I think it's Newton's third law of motion that every uh, motion or every action uh, it produces an equal and opposite reaction. And so whether you're talking about the pendulum effect uh, or, or which actually a term, which I think came from Galileo, the pendulum effect or Newton's law of motion, whether you're talking about Hegel's historical dialectic, it's all the same thing. That when things, that one extreme tends to produce an opposite extreme, you can see that in politics. When you get extremist left-wing politics, it tends to produce extreme right-wing politics and vice versa. So it, it's just it's just sort of a, I mean, if, if, you, if you understand that nature has a balancing effect, that there's something built into nature, whether it's in psychology or physics or human history, that things tend to balance out. And so um, the universities, because they were, created by and dominated by the church uh, for most of the, its existence. And then, when the, and then when you get the rise of secularism and, um, and the, uh, the secularists or the materialists take over the universities and then it's just, as I say, it's payback time where they kind of you know, wanna get back. So then just as the universities tended to banish atheism or materialism. So now when the atheists and materialists take over the universities, they banish religion. So all this, this is kind of cartoonish, 
and, and foolish. And so the idea that science is objective and religion is subjective is, uh, it, it's, a, it's a 20th century idea. Philosophically, it's, it, it's kind of stupid. And so I'll, I'll go into that and, and we'll talk about that. First of all, uh, if, if we talk about um, the word science, let's go to the dictionary, which I think dictionary will show that the uh, devil's advocate definition of science given by Sankarshan is doesn't really agree with the dictionary. So, I mean, it, it is true that, that the first definition given, and, and it depends on what dictionary. You know, there are many quote unquote respectable dictionaries and it just depends on how materialistic or non-materialistic the chief editor is of a particular dictionary. But in the one on my computer, which is not a great dictionary, it says it's, it begins with the systematic study of the structure and behavior of the physical and natural world through observation, experimentation, testing of theories. It can be also, uh, actually this is a, a systematically organized body of knowledge on a particular sub subject like the science of criminology. I mean, consider the term social science. I mean, I mean because human beings have free will and dead matter doesn't have free will, a, uh, a science of matter will never be exactly like a social science, psychology, sociology. So right there, you have a difference. I mean, if we want to deny that there even is such a thing as social science, that there's no such thing as social science, uh, which would be a very radical position that few scholars would accept. But if we accept there's social science, and we've already gone out, I mean, that definition you gave has already gone out the window because sociology and psychology are not sciences in the same way that physics or chemistry are science. And, and even if you talk about physics, uh, well, I mean, you know, there's all the problems with quantum physics, but I don't want to go too far afield here. So therefore, the first thing I want to do is find a more serious dictionary. Uh, the one on my Apple computer tends to be pretty bad. So let's just say define science, and then let's look at some other more serious dictionaries, which are, you know, respected dictionaries. See, Miriam, uh, so it can be a department of systemized knowledge, something such as a sport or technique that may be studied and learned, such as systemized knowledge, uh, the state of knowing knowledge as distinguished from ignorance, and also, of course, there are the definitions of knowing the natural world. So, so the, the, I, I wanna make this point. Um, if you look at the methodology of empirical science, empirical science or physical science, the first thing that should strike you is that by its own ground rules, it is absolutely limited to studying things that we can control. Because if you can't control something, you can't perform a controlled experiment on it if you can't control something, you cannot um, you can't control the axis. For example, we can say we can't control the sun. However, we can control our access to the sun. In other words, the sun rises every morning, as we say, and we can look at it, and we can look at it with a telescope, and we can so we have control. We can control our access to the sun. And there's nothing within the realm of, of science itself that would 
dictate that necessarily the time will never come when we can, let's say, go to the sun and have some kind of incredible technology that protects us. So in principle, in principle, according, uh, we can control our access to the sun. And if we had enough power, uh, theoretically, one could even affect the sun. One could do things to the sun. So it, that's not theoretically impossible. It's not, it doesn't violate any of the known laws of nature that we could eventually develop power so great that we could, for example, let's say there was another star that was heading toward our solar system was gonna kill life as we know it. Uh, don't cheer. So um, then theoretically, you know, like in these movies, if let's say hundreds of years from now, if science had advanced so much and then you could, you know, shoot something at that rogue star and blow it up or something. So all these things do not violate the laws of nature. It's just we're not there yet. So in general, whatever we can study empirically, uh, we have to be able to control in some way, either controlling it in the sense of manipulating it or even just having controlled access to it. For example, let's say there's a person that doesn't want to see you and you can't force yourself, you can't force that person to see you, you can't break into that person's house. So when we're talking about people, we do not necessarily control the access and we don't control the people. Now, if we talk about God, if we talk about God, God, even if you say theoretically, is an, is an omnipotent being, an all-knowing omnipotent being, and therefore it's absurd to say that you can control God uh, if God doesn't choose to allow you that kind of relationship. So, so therefore, if we say that science just means, if we say science means knowing, because that's where it comes from. There's a relation, for example, between the word science and the word conscience, right? Cone science really is what it, the word is, cone science. And so um, if you say that nothing can be known unless we can control it, Is that really true? Does that sound like something that's true? That nothing really exists unless we control, unless we can't control it. Now the question, now of course, that assumption is not empiric. That's not empiric assumption. That's a metaphysical assumption. So on what grounds, I mean, would anyone like to argue that you can't know something unless you can control it? I mean, for one thing, let's say you you see something that's, let's say you meet another person, let's say you fall in love. As a sannyasi, I won't get too romantic here, but let's say, let's say someone falls in love with another person or, or someone thinks that per, that's a beautiful person. You can't empirically prove the person is beautiful. What does it even mean? What does it even mean? What would it mean to prove that something is beautiful? whether it's just some scene in nature or the face of a beautiful person, what would it even mean to prove that someone is beautiful? It's, it's, it, it doesn't mean anything. Let's, let's say, for example, we assume it's, it's wrong to uh, shoot and kill innocent people, something the Republican Party in, in America hasn't quite grasped yet. So let's say, let's say it's, um, Let's, let's say it's wrong to kill innocent people. You can't prove that it's wrong. The Scottish philosopher, 
honk if you, you know, if you like Scottish philosophers. The Scottish philosopher David Hume made that point. You can't derive a metaphysical fact from a physical fact. In other words, let's say there's a physical fact that someone killed an innocent person. That's a physical fact. How can you derive from that the metaphysical fact that it was an evil deed, that it was wrong to do that? And so therefore, if we really want to go with this childish idea, this kind of philosophically brain-dead notion that you can only objectively know things if, if they're empirical, which, by the way, you can't empirically know that fact. So the first problem is that that statement contradicts itself. So if we say that physical science is a realm of objectivity, but you cannot confirm that by physical science. So, so you have this mega definition, you have this great definition of science, which is unscientific. So, so the fanatical materialistic definition of science begins by contradicting itself, not a good start. If you're trying to be rational about something and your first statement is a self-contradiction, uh, you're not doing well. So if we want to say, so, so are we willing to say that it's not scientific, that all people are equal? That for example, let's say that we have a judicial system where you can buy justice. So two people come before the court, whoever has more money or who's ever willing to spend more money uh, gets a dis favorable decision from the, from the judge. If you say that's wrong, but it's not scientific to say it's wrong because it's not an empirical fact. Justice is not an empirical thing. In fact, in the natural world of animals, there's no justice, they just kill and eat each other. So therefore, it's not scientific to say that we should have justice. It's not scientific to say that everyone should be treated equally. It's not scientific to say that it's wrong to slaughter innocent people. It's not scientific to say that some things in life are beautiful. None of that is scientific. And so if, if we throw all of that out as just subjective imagination, what is left that we can even recognize as a human life worth living? So the real fact is that, that no one actually believes, unless, unless you talk about some crazy demented person, no one actually believes that uh, only empirical things are real. For example, uh, that clownish figure, what's his name? That English scientist who's just a, makes a fool of himself every time he opens his mouth. Uh, Dawkins. Yes, Dawkins. By the way, that Dawkins, uh, he violates the first law of scholarship, which is don't speak outside your area of expertise. And so what he's actually doing is speaking constantly. Someone should, I mean, it's unfortunate he's unable to shut up, but he's constantly speaking about, um, about philosophy of science, philosophy of religion, history, areas in which he has absolutely no academic training and makes a fool of himself every time he opens his mouth. So, Obviously, he believes that some things are real, which aren't empirical. For example, he feels that he should really get this message out to people. He feels that he really wants, so why? 
It's not scientific to say that you should get this message out. Why is he so desperately anxious to convince everyone unless he places a value on speaking what he believes is the truth, but that truth is not empirical and therefore it's not the truth at all. So what is he even doing? So, I mean, there's all these contradictions that people just don't notice because we do not live in a very bright age. So as far as that, I mean, you can define science however you like. What if there is a God? If there is a God, then you could say that you can never scientifically understand the truth. So if, if some things are not only true, but they're very importantly true, and they're very relevant, but you cannot know them scientifically, you can't say there's something wrong with the truth. Can you say something is wrong with science? And by the way, who has the right to define science? That's a, that's a cultural definition. It's not that some great scientist came down from Mount Sinai with these tablets that had these, you know, the 10 commandments of epistemology or something. So if a particular culture at a particular time in history chooses to give a certain definition to a certain word, there's no, that's not an absolute truth. It's just the way it's, it's actually, it's just political. Certain group of people have power, some type of social or political power to control what goes into dictionaries or to control who gets hired in universities, to control speech by, by uh, in different ways, um, punishing people that don't agree with that definition. So in what sense is that definition of science, which Sankarsana gave, in what sense is that definition objective? It's not empirically true. So he said that, uh, you know, objective, like objective knowledge or science has to be empirical. But that statement itself is not empirical. So it's like saying never say never. So if, Shankar's, if Sankarshan's statement is true, then his statement is not true. Because if it's true that real science means things that can be empirically verified, since we can't empirically verify that statement, his statement, if it's true, is not true. So uh, I think it's obvious that if you, if you say something philosophically, which if it's true is not true, it's clear you're speaking nonsense. You're simply speaking nonsense. And that's why even atheistic philosophers, you know, God help them, even atheistic philosophers rejected that idea that objective knowledge is limited to the empirical over 60 years ago. So if even the atheist, and so you have this lag time, so that's just like, for example, when Newton was, was making all his discoveries, people who were teaching Newtonian physics in many countries in Europe couldn't get jobs in universities because the universities controlled by various churches were committed to these anachronistic outdated concepts. So in the same way, nowadays, if you give real philosophy, you may not get a job in a university. So the universities are doing what they've always done. And that is sectarian, uh, fanatical. And so you could say, well, universities have, have uh, you know, they accomplish a lot, yes, but within perimeters. 
within certain perimeters. I mean, obviously, there is a lot of good science going on in universities. There's even some good philosophy in addition to all the nonsense that goes on. And so, so is there more nonsense or good philosophy? That's a good question. I'm not sure, but there's a lot of nonsense. And there's some good philosophy. So therefore, uh, so let's take it from the other angle. Let's assume, for example, that there is such a thing as God in the sort of standard idea, triple O God, omnipotent, omniscient, omnibenevolent, all good, all strong, all knowing. That's the Germanic side of English. So, um, so if that's true, if there's a God, and if it's also true that God gives us reliable, reasonable information about how to know God, it's like, you know, knowing God for dummies, which is basically, you know, the Bhagavad Gita. So then, so if there's a God, and if we can know God, and people verify it, in what sense is that not science? If you say it's not material science, of course, no one claims it is. No one claims it's, and so what we're saying is that in Krishna consciousness, we have a science for knowing things greater than ourselves, whereas empirical science is a science for knowing things inferior to ourselves. So if you say we can only know things that are, we, that are inferior to us, there's nothing rational and much less scientific about that claim. Why should that be the case? Why should we believe that? Why should the billions and billions, you know, billions of human beings who have known God, more or less, why should they believe it? And like I said, the whole basis of science is non-scientific. For example, uh, not only the claim that, 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 that science, physical science has exclusive authority to objectively know things, not only is that not scientific, but ultimately empirical science is resting on a, a non-scientific assumption, a non-empirical assumption, as I've explained many times, namely that there's a real physical world outside of your mind. So science is resting on, or empiricism is resting upon something which is not empirical. It's actually resting on many non-empirical things. For example, another non-empirical assumption it rests on is what's called the principle of uh, uniformity. So let's say that we uh, detect light and science astronomers study and say this light is coming from a faraway galaxy. And it's actually, you know, it's it's a this light is actually a millions and millions of years ago. Uh, Luke Skywalker shot this weapon, and now the light is just coming. Anyway, that's a joke. So let's far, far. So let's say the light is coming from a far galaxy. And well, how do you know? Well, how do you know it's coming from a far galaxy? Because the galaxy is can be millions and millions and millions of light years away, which means that at the speed of light, which is very fast, at the speed of light, it takes millions and millions and millions of years to get here. That means it's passing through a lot of real estate, a lot of cosmic space, 
Now, how do you know as a scientist, since you've never been to those places, you've never observed those places directly, how do you know the laws of nature function exactly the same way? How do you know space and time are the same in faraway galaxies, or for that matter, uh, on Earth? I mean, how, how, but let's talk about faraway galaxies. How do you know the laws of space and time are identical to the laws of space and time on our planet or in our local, our you know, neighborhood in the galaxy? How do you know causality operates the same way? How do you know that? Well, you don't. And so you assume it's true. You just assume that it's true. So no one can prove the uniformity of causality of, of space and time throughout all of the universe, throughout all of the universes. Now we have theories of multiple universes, which in my view were just sort of rushed into, uh, it's almost like when there's a war and your country's in danger. So you take people who under normal conditions wouldn't be qualified to be in the army, but you kind of put them in the army anyway, you make them officers. So in that way, uh, because it turns out to be almost infinitely improbable that the universe as it exists could arise without intelligent consciousness designing it, because that turns out to be absurdly improbable, absurdly improbable. Therefore, to change the odds, they had to say, well, what if there are billions of universes that changes the odds? It actually doesn't change the odds for our universe, by the way. But it's, um, so that was just, I think that was, the multiple universe theory is, is actually more political than scientific. But apart from that, if, if you really make a list of things, you can say there was a big bang. Uh, actually, Keith Ward, that uh, very nice gentleman who helped us to get the Oxford Institute going, Keith Ward, that Oxford theologian, he made the point that before the Big Bang, there was no space and time. So therefore, the Big Bang didn't take place in space. It didn't take place in time. And so where did it take place? And since the laws of nature, the laws of causality didn't exist before the universe, how could the Big Bang take place according to any physical laws? There's all kinds of problems. I mean, there the problems are, if you really dig deep into the physicalist, the materialistic worldview, there's just problems all over the place. It's just like if you look at the Middle Ages and they had this Christian theology, which was in some ways nice, in some ways bizarre and even demonic. For example, the idea that there's an eternal hell. So you have God supposed to be we're infinitely merciful becoming actually being depicted as the most evil creature ever conceived by a human mind. That what was his name? Uh, Anselm had his ontological argument. God is that being than whom no greater being can be conceived. But if you look at Christian theology as it developed into the Middle Ages, you'd have to say the Christian God is that being than whom no more evil being can be conceived. Because after all, what could be more evil than torturing? I mean, torturing anybody is not nice. But imagine torturing your own children forever, forever. Torturing, and they say the punishment has to fit the crime. And so uh, what possible crime could 
make it rational to torture someone in the most horrible ways forever, forever. And so it's interesting, this was a preaching strategy to traumatize people in order to manipulate them into you know, joining or staying in your religion. But anyway, original, I mean, there are all kinds of irrational things, the idea that Jesus is the only way, all kinds of problems with that idea, both even text problems, textual problems, the fact that it's only found in one of the gospels, which no one ever, even when it first came out, thought was accurate history. So what I'm saying is, but, be, but that was, so what you find is that civilizations tend to grasp onto a non-rational foundation for their worldview. And even though it's full of irrational, even crazy ideas, uh, you're just supposed to think that way. And to get a job in a university, you have, to you have to talk that way. And so what I'm saying is that the irrational, in some ways, crazy, crazy worldview that dominated the West for so long and caused incredible amounts of human suffering dialectically created its equal and opposite madness, which is called philosophical materialism. And actually philosophical materialism is just as crazy and foolish and irrational and absurd as the extremist religion that actually created it. And so basically we have these two forms of madness, these two pseudo philosophies, these two forms of madness, and in the middle comes Krishna consciousness. Yay. So, or, or Krishna, or just any reasonable, moderate, sane picture of the world. So again, in a civilization in which uh, our, our political systems, our moral systems, our social systems are all based on non-empirical metaphysical assumptions like justice and equality. To say that none of that is real, justice is unreal, mercy is unreal, beauty is unreal, morality is unreal, everything is unreal except materialism at a time when we now know that we don't know even what matter is. Even if you say you're a materialist, that's become kind of meaningless because if you look at the latest quantum physics, no one really knows what matter is. So if you say, I don't know what matter is, but I'm a materialist, what does that mean? Anyway, I see that uh, Ramananda, uh, want, you had your hand up, then your hand went down. Yes, thank you, Charlie. Um, <laughs> I, my, my question is, um, if you could please uh, kind of outline what this what we mean by a spiritual science in Krishna consciousness and how that might compare with um, uh, what what another tradition might say, for example, in Christianity, could they could could uh, could someone within a, a Christian denomination say that they're practicing a spiritual science, or, or um, what's the distinction between that and a religion? I, I guess is is my question. Very good question. Good question. Was that your question, or, or did your lion ask you? <laughs> yeah, he's always he's got a few in his pocket. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. What is so? What does it mean to have a spiritual science? Now that I've done the demolition part of the program, was it? What does it actually mean to have a, a spiritual science? Well, uh, 
let, let's start with a simple point that someone puts forward a theory or a view. Someone says, this is the truth. And that truth somehow involves spiritual things, which often involves God, or you have kind of like these unusual traditions like Jainism, where they believed in, in an eternal soul, but no God. So, but, but let's say someone has some kind of spiritual philosophy uh, and they claim this is true and they claim that it's possible to learn it scientifically in the sense that you can test it, you can see for yourself, you can have direct experience of the results of it and so on. So I would say the first test we'd have to submit it to would be uh, in epistemology, it's called uh, coherentism. Coherentism, you can put ism on anything, right? You could say like, I don't know, hot fudge Sundayism or something. Anyway, but coherentism, coherentism means you can check it to see if it's coherent or not. So if you, for example, if I say God is infinitely merciful, God performs the most evil acts ever imagined, the most cruel acts ever, there, there's a coherence problem there. And there's no, you know, and, and of course, Christian theologians have, you know, they've bravely marched into battle, sort of like World War I, where you had, you know, the old 19th century cavalry marching against machine guns and getting mowed down in the most cruel ways. So I think Christian theologians, when they try to justify this eternal punishment, they're like, you know, like the, the old cavalry marching against the machine guns, because it, so that's incoherent. It's simply incoherent. Or if you say that God is uh, infinitely attractive, but invisible, or God loves us, but never lets us see him, never lets us know him, uh, to me, that's incoherent. So, so the first thing is, and there, there, there are many different ways that you could check for coherence. In other words, am I contradicting myself? Or am I saying things that, that appear to be contradictory and for which no satisfactory resolution could be found? So one thing, is it coherent? Another point would be, is this knowledge able to be transmitted? Is it, for example, if I say that actually uh, our universe is being governed by a magical pumpkin that has great consciousness, and, and I say, and, and I can see that pumpkin, but no one else can. I'm the only soul who's been blessed to see the magical pumpkin. So, so a claim has to be coherent. And I would say also it has to be available for public inspection, but appropriate public inspection. If someone says, show me God, that's a really irrational thing to say. Because if I say, show me quantum physics, have you ever studied it? No. Are you willing to study it? No. Are you willing to, uh, you know, go through the different tests that should? No, just bring it to me. Bring it to me on a platter. That doesn't work in any field of knowledge. You can't demand that scientists, material science, just bring you all the truths of science that take years of study. I mean, to really understand, let's say, cutting-edge science takes many, many, many years of study. And so, therefore, is empirical science publicly available? No, it's not. 
It's not publicly available. It's available exclusively to people who take the time and trouble to get into it. And of course, even among people who study science, some of them say this is all cheating. You know, I mean, so now, um, so it's available to those who are qualified to know it, but there is a rational means of knowing. And we find very large numbers of people by adopting uh, appropriate processes, in fact, do claim to have direct personal experience of that particular area. So if you look at the history of the world, most human beings that ever lived, most human beings that ever lived claimed that they experienced something which is beyond the earthly, or even you could say beyond the empirical. Now, the number of people who actually have direct experience of theoretical science is actually much smaller than the number of people that claim to have direct experience of metaphysical things. Now, in fact, most people accept science, not because they actually study the equations or work it out, because hardly, you know, very few people do that. Most people accept science because of applied science, because what science can do for them in their life, like going to the dentist or taking you know, a commercial jet or whatever. Most people, or, or you know, buying a computer. Most people, the overwhelming majority of people that accept science do not do so because they have personally confirmed the equations or done the experiments, or gone into the lab. Hardly anyone does that. Tiny, tiny minority. What the overwhelming majority of people actually do is they enjoy the results of applied science. Now, in the same way, if you look at religion, do we have objective benefits of applied religion? In fact, yes, we do. For example, uh, let's talk about those, you know, I don't, I don't want to say rare moments, but those moments in history where people have not behaved like shameless savages and who have actually developed some kind of moral system. So if you ask a simple question, historically, throughout human history, history, where do moral systems come from? So in most societies that ever existed, you couldn't just walk down the street killing and raping people. I mean, most of the time you couldn't do that because there were moral systems in place. Where do those moral systems come from? They come from religion. So, so moral systems are an example of applied spiritual science. And most people, or so, so how is that different from empirical science in the sense that the overwhelming majority of people accept it because of the applications and not because of personally studying the science. There are other things, actually, uh, probably most people that ever lived, most human beings that ever lived on this planet uh, would testify that through some kind of religious process, they experienced something which was sublime and real and inspiring beyond their ordinary empiric perceptions. So if you say, as just to wrap this up, and then we'll go to Jagat Palana, who never disappoints, he always has his questions. If we say that, 
if we say that, for example, well, uh, you know, the fact that people say they've experienced God, uh, that doesn't prove anything. I'm sure you've all heard that. That's the standard mindless reply of the materialist. It doesn't prove anything. Oh, really? So let's examine that claim that human testimony doesn't prove anything. Of all the things that you think you know, such as geography, I mean, most of the countries in the world you haven't been to. And certainly probably 99.99 whatever percent of all the places in the world you've never been to. And yet we believe in maps. But if human testimony doesn't mean anything, why do we believe in maps? Why do we believe in the testimony of the people that wrote the Constitution? Why do we believe when you get on a commercial jet and you've heard, let's say, that this is a reliable airline, that you know they have a good safety record, why do you believe that? That's human testimony. If you actually think about it, without believing human testimony, you could not live. You could basically just go to a cave somewhere and, you know, I don't know, maybe live off of uh, slow-moving insects or something. Not only that, what about, what about the human testimony that there's a real physical world outside of our mind? Again, you can't do empirical science unless you believe the non-empirical truth, non-empirical, that there's a real physical world. What about what you believe is true about history? So of all the things that we think we know, there's a very, very tiny minority of them that we actually personally experienced. And even those experiences can be problematized because what if the world is basically illusory? What if, you know, what if you're a brain in a vat being manipulated so that, what if there is no such thing as the earth, but you're just, you know, a brain in a laboratory somewhere uh, just being manipulated into thinking that. So again, the idea that, um, you know, empirical things are somehow reliable and, and spiritual things are not is like, I mean, from the philosophical point of view, it's extremely primitive. It's almost embarrassingly primitive. And it's, 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 it, yeah, it's, there's, there's nothing in it which in any way resembles rational thinking or philosophy. So Ramananda, did I uh, answer your question or do you want a refund? Um, I would ask for a refund, but I'll ask for an upsell. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, you, you did, and, and I just, I'd like, if, if possible, um, based on your experience of studying different religions, um, can, you, can you think of any examples where they could uh, reasonably claim that they're practicing a spiritual science? Uh, because it's, the reason I ask is because I haven't heard other religions talk about, I haven't really heard much about from other religions, to be honest. Um, I, I haven't heard and say there is spiritual science. So we seem quite unique in that aspect or, or perhaps oh. we're not unique and I've misunderstood. I think, um, I think other people may talk about it, but I think we do have a spiritual science because I mean, the word yoga means a disciplined practice of something. 
if you think about it, um, I remember when I took a, a course at UCLA on early Christian history, which is basically the historical context in which Jesus appeared in the first generation or two, how the New Testament was written and who wrote it, what their motives were and so on. And to what extent can we even know the historical Jesus? Um, repeat your question one more time, because I just, I got it. Um, I think um, what I'm asking is, um, are you aware of any other traditions? Oh, yes, yeah. Yeah, so I remember, so in that course, I took that course at UCLA, and I, I never forget the professor said that, basically, I think he was saying that, um, that the church made a big blunder and uh, which kind of the way I remember, I still remember the, the, the phrase he used where they, they cut a vital nerve in the process, in the Christian process. And I'll explain what that meant. Uh, up until the time of Constantine, who, uh, you know, I guess, who in one sense, I think one of the great villains of history because he made Christianity something like a state religion. Um, before that time, before that time, um, before Constantine, to be baptized, to be baptized was very much like what we call diksha or initiation. And when you were baptized, you had to, um, you had to make a vow. You had to, you know, you're going to follow certain principles, which could vary depending on which brand of Christianity you had. Before Constantine, there were actually dozens and dozens of Christianities with all kinds of different rules and even interpretations of Jesus. And so, um, but then, um, interesting, the, the most influential Christian philosopher for many, many centuries, including throughout the Middle Ages, made all kinds of horrendous blunders. And that was uh, Augustine of Hippo. And so one of the things he argued for was uh, infant baptism. And the reason, and this is a very interesting story. And the reason I'm mentioning this is because it, it actually does get to your question, but this is a scenic road. And that is um, when, If you understand that in order to be initiated, because baptism was like initiation, that, that in order to be initiated, you have to follow certain principles and therefore uh, it's measurable. I mean, it, it sort of lends itself to quote unquote a science because external behavior is measurable. You know, we can measure external behavior. And also uh, what we found in the Hare Krishna movement is that, you know, is, there's a limit to how much you can fake it till you make it. In the sense that um, if you're not really Krishna conscious, uh, our principles are going to become, you know, like a real burden and like, why am I doing this? I can't do this. And so it, it, it takes real Krishna consciousness to, to, to keep following the, you know, the strict practice of bhakti yoga. So, um, so if you, now the reason that Augustine, uh, I'm just gonna 
disable the noise on my phone for a second because uh, I mean it's nice to know that people like me and keep sending me messages but so um, Augustine one thing you have to know about Augustine is that for I think 10 years before he came back to his mother's religion of Christianity his mother was uh, Santa Monica right she got a great beach town named after her in California. So anyway, Augustine, uh, he thought he, he you know, was in North Africa, and that was kind of like the buckle on the Bible belt in the Roman Empire. It's sort of like really lowbrow, you know, dogmatic Christianity, and he was sort of an intellectual, so he thought, I'm out of here. So it's just like someone grows up, you know, in Mississippi and thinks, now I'm going to New York, you know, I'm going to. So he went to Milan, he went to Italy rejected Christianity, and uh, and eventually, I mean, not too long after, became a, uh, what do you call those people? Um, oh, my God, I can't believe it's just, just Manichaean. Like, Manichaean. Manichaean. Manichaean, yes, thank you. Sempre gli italiani conoscono la chiesa. So he became a Manichaean, and uh, so, yeah, it was a Persian self-styled guru named Mani, who sort of died in uh, premature death based on his philosophy. Because this money, who started the Manichaean religion, he taught that um, he was addressing the problem of evil. There's a, a God who's good. Why is there so much nonsense in the world, so much suffering? So his answer was, because God is good, but the God in our universe is actually the devil. In other words, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the Old Testament, the God of the New Testament, actually, uh, is the devil. So you can see with a philosophy like that, you know, you wouldn't want to bet on a long lifespan for him. So, so he taught that. And because this world is created by an evil God, therefore, the creation is evil. Your body is evil. Your body is filthy and disgusting. And, you know, it's like you're you know, like a normal Sunday feast lecture. Anyway, so your body, your, your it's a joke. Your, your, <laughs> so, so, so your body is evil and disgusting and uh, the world's disgusting. Now, Augustine then came back for various reasons. He met some Christian Platonists. They were Christians, but they followed Plato who actually was kind of smart. So then he became a Christian again. So, but he kind of, you know, he kind of brought some of this Manichaeism with him, in my view. For example, it was Augustine that gave us such incredibly rational doctrines as original sin. That, you know, you're polluted and contaminated because, I, I don't know, Adam bit the apple or something. So the idea that you are morally culpable, it's your fault that someone else that you never met thousands and thousands of years ago did something wrong is obviously not rational. He was all, also a celebrated misogynist. You know, women are all obviously yuck. I mean, that was that was Augustine, not me. And so, uh, and therefore he opposed, he, he supported infant baptism. Here's the connection, because we are so evil. And Calvin, I mean, this goes straight to Calvin, another genius. Anyway, so the point is, because this world is created by an evil God, and therefore your body is evil, and the world's evil, and everything is evil, 
therefore, there's no question of like joining the Christian movement. There's no question of, there's no question of like really changing yourself because you can't change yourself. You're too evil. And therefore, why not baptize an infant? Because even if the infant grows into an adult, that adult is still horribly contaminated and filthy and blah, blah, blah. So therefore, with the advent of infant baptism, baptism no longer was a like initiation. It's not that you earned it. It's not that you had to follow certain principles. I mean, forget all that. You're baptized as an infant. So with that, I would say Christianity, it really started to move away quite rapidly from anything you could recognize as a spiritual science. Because if you believe that, you know, we're so evil because all, you know, blah, 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 and we're so dirty, then you're not saved because you begin a spiritual process. It really changes you like, you know, I become vegetarian or I become a vegan or I now uh, no longer engage in illicit sex or I don't take drugs or, you know, so on and so forth. And so which is scientific. For example, I joined Krishna consciousness and it had an amazing, powerful effect on me. It changed my life in terms of my habits. And I was able to control myself in a way that I couldn't before. I was able to follow principles that I would never have dreamed of following before. And so, and so that's science. But if you say that, no, we're just evil and therefore it's all the... And not only that, actually Augustine made two moves. One was original sin and all that. Another one was, there was the, uh, what was that heresy called the uh, Don, no, no, the, um, I forget the name, but, but I'll explain this heresy because it all feeds into how Christianity basically kind of threw out the idea of a spiritual science. Uh, as you know, periodically there were uh, Roman persecutions of the Christians. Now what's interesting, what you may not know is that the Roman persecution of Christianity was actually not nearly as much as the Christian persecution of pagans once they got power. Because what scholars have said is that the Roman persecution of Christians tend to be tended to be localized, namely in Rome, and it was sporadic. It was just, you know, from time to time. And so in terms of space and time, it tended to be sporadic and specific. Whereas once the Christians took power, they just began to persecute non-Christians, pagans, Jews, and so on, everywhere at all times. So just a, you know, interesting little historical fact there. But in any case, during the last great Roman persecution of the Christians before Constantine, um, many, many priests, in order to avoid being tortured horribly and killed horribly, uh, they renounce Christianity. I mean, externally, not internally, but it's like, okay, it's like if someone said to me, you know, you know, renounce Krishna consciousness, you're going to be horribly tortured and very slowly killed. I'd probably say whatever they wanted me to say. You know, it's like, and you know, live to fight another day. And so a lot of priests, I would say the ones that have common sense, save themselves and save their families save their families, their children, and they said whatever the Inquisition or whatever the Romans wanted them to say. And then once that, that Roman emperor was gone, was dead, 
they were, you know, they said, okay, now we're, we're actually Christians. We just didn't want ourselves and our families to be tortured and killed. Now, some people were saying there were these fanatics in the Christian movement at that point who said that, no, the only real Christians were the ones who embraced torture and death like Jesus. And therefore, anyone who uh, did not embrace torture and death, weird psychology, anyone that did not embrace torture and death can't be a priest. The problem was that most of the priests had some common sense and saved their necks and saved their families. And so if this would have been enforced, there would have been a real shortage of priests. It would be like trying to you know, find baby formula in the United States right now. So anyway, so therefore they, um, and Augustine, Augustine said, well, no, they can still be priests. We should not excommunicate them. Interestingly, the reason he gave was because ultimately, uh, what justifies the priest, to use their word they like, what justifies the priest is not his or her um, you know, personal spirituality, but rather it's the church itself. It's the church. You know, and I won't get into the whole thing of how the Holy Spirit was invented as this third being to justify changing church doctrine. But anyway, it's the church. So again, so in these two ways, by saying you're justified not by your own spiritual behavior, not by the fact that you follow principles, not by, not by any external behavior which can be measured and observed and therefore can form part of a spiritual science, but rather just if the church says so, then that's the way it is. And then the idea that, you know, baptism is not something you earn by practicing a spiritual science. You know, you can be baptized as a baby because after all, no one can actually advance anyway. There can't really be a spiritual science <clears throat> because if there was a spiritual science, it would mean there were objective principles that you could follow and kind of earn your salvation. But if in any way you earn your salvation, you're taking glory away from God and therefore you cannot earn your salvation. So that's Augustine. It's, you know, Calvinism. It's all these to me, like really uh, extremely wrong-headed ideas. What Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita is that I reciprocate. So if you take a step toward me, I'll take a step or more toward you. So we give the glory to Krishna, but Krishna teaches that I'm reciprocating with you. If someone recipro if God reciprocates with me, and if I thereby make spiritual advancement, it must be the case that somehow I deserved it. I mean, and again, this is not a saying that I take credit for because Krishna gives me a thousand times more than I deserve. But still, there is some ratio there. Anyway, and, and even in ISKCON, you can see that actually, because th this, I think, wrong-headed idea pops up everywhere in world religions. So some devotees interpret the word causeless mercy. Causeless mercy to mean that um, you know you can't do anything to deserve it. You did nothing. You joined the Hare Krishna movement just out of causeless mercy. You know we were all just a bunch of bums. We were just sewer rats, but somehow you know out of causeless mercy we were saved. Now the problem with that you can call that the sewer sewer rat version of bhakti yoga. The problem with that is that. 
many, many statements in the Bhagavad Gita would be false if that were true. Like Krishna saying he's equal to everyone, he doesn't favor anyone, doesn't hate anyone, the wise see everyone equally, Pandita Samadarshana, you can only achieve advanced bhakti yoga if you are equal to everyone. Krishna says he comes to this world specifically to restore justice to the world. Krishna says that he reciprocates with everyone precisely as they approach him. So it's actually kind of a misinterpretation of the term causeless mercy. Like, for example, in the, in the Bhagavatam verse, Vasudeva Bhagavati Bhakti Yoga Prayojita. So if, if you can give a, uh, let's see, I'll tell you where that verse is, Vasudeva Bhagavati. That is the Bhagavatam 127. If you would like to relish that on your own time, where 127, where the Bhagavatam says, Vasudeva Bhagavati Bhakti Yoga Prayojita. When you dedicate or apply Bhakti Yoga to Lord Vasudeva, Janiyatyashu Vairagyam Gyanam Chajanahai to come. It immediately produces causeless knowledge and detachment. Now, as I explained in, in, a, in a, I think, was it one of our philosophy things we were doing? That is misunderstood to mean that the mercy is causeless, that the devotion comes causelessly. But that's a bad translation because the word ahaitu come uh, ends with an M, which means that it cannot modify bhakti. It cannot be that the, the reward cannot be causeless because grammatically it doesn't work. The word ahaitukam, which means causeless, has to refer to the word jnanam and vairagyam. So, and also the word ahaitukam means causeless in the sense that there's no psychological cause, there's no motive. So the word hetu in Sanskrit often means a motive, a psychological cause. And so what the verse is actually saying is that bhakti yoga produces knowledge and detachment in which you have no selfish motives. The knowledge has no selfish motive. The detachment has no selfish motive. It's not that you're studying bhakti yoga because you want to get a job as a professor or you want to show off to your friends how many you know, slokas you know. Sloka Raja, or the detachment. It's not that you're showing off like, yeah, you know, I, I fast completely six days a week, and you know, I'll probably die young, but still, you know, I'm very austere. So, no, it's not the detachment or the knowledge which are given to you for no cause. It's that the knowledge and the detachment you get and that you now possess are free of selfish motives. So, but again, you find the same motive, whether it's in Calvin or Augustine or the people who misunderstand causeless mercy in our philosophy. No, all glory to God, all glory to God. Like we say, I mean, we say that all glories to, right? So if I take any credit at all, if I had anything to do with the fact that I joined the Hare Krishna movement, if I have anything to do with the fact that I'm still in the Hare Krishna movement, then I'm taking away from the glory of God or I'm taking away from the glory of the Acharya. And so therefore to give them all the glory, I have to promote a totally unphilosophical you know, idea which contradicts almost everything Krishna says in the Gita. 
that, you know, I didn't deserve it. Now, that's okay if you're just being ecstatic, like Mother Yasoda thinks Krishna's her child. So if you're just sort of having this ecstatic yoga maya divine illusion moment in which you say, you know, that I was just a sewer rat or whatever, you can pick your own. Devotees are really good at very vivid, picturesque language of how fallen they were. So, so if you're just having an ecstatic moment and you're just sort of feeling ecstatic humility, you know, go with it. But if you're trying to make a serious philosophical point, don't go with it because it's not serious philosophy. It's not our philosophy. It's not what Krishna teaches. But that's the same impulse that actually, in a sense, when you, when you go the, you know, the causeless mercy route, you destroy the spiritual science because you sever any connection between the situation I'm in spiritually and what my behavior was. And if there's no connection between behavior and spiritual results, how in the world is it a science? It's just, well, if you catch Krishna on a good day, you know, if he's in a good mood and just, you know, inclined to throw a little causeless mercy your way, it's not a science. There's no, it's not that you systematically expand consciousness. So therefore, this is what I call hyper piety, where you want to give all the credit to God, uh, you know, you actually destroy the spiritual science. Hey, Ramananda, I actually came all the way back home to your point. Amazing, isn't it? You, you probably thought I was having an age-related, you know, moment or something. But yeah, so, so therefore, those religions that stress causeless mercy or, or even ritual, because if you do rituals, what is the connection between a ritual and the result you get? Like, like in other words, if, if, if you belong to some Harry Potter religion, where it's sort of magical. And this gets into the difference between mysticism and magic. Mysticism means there's no systematic, rational, coherent, logical system. Whereas mysticism means there are experiences and entities beyond the empirical, but it actually, all of these entities follow reasonable laws that make sense. So it's a rational, predictable, logical system, but it involves metaphysical entities. Whereas magic, there is no symptom. It's like, you know, take some, some little fur from a squirrel's tail and then mix it with pink lemonade and say, bajoom, 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 and uh, spit over your left shoulder. And then um, what will happen? Oh, your fingernails will automatically be clipped. So it's, I mean, it's, so if, if you look at magic, it's just completely incoherent. It's just like there's no, there's no system. It's just a series of one-off magical things. So, yeah, so, so that's the point in answer to Ramananda's question, that the extent to which one, and you see it in, you see it in ISKCON. I mean, ISKCON, because it's, it's humanity. And so you find all the typical pitfalls. They're the people that do the causeless mercy thing, which destroys the spiritual science. And they're devotees to do the magic thing. Like, oh my God, it is Saturday late morning and I just sneezed and I was facing south. 
oh my God. So now you have to, you know, I don't know, maybe throw mung beans over your left shoulder or snap your fingers, you know, sort of your basic jazz rhythm. You know, <laughs> snap your, I mean, if you think about it, there's no rhyme or reason to it. If, if, you, if you stick to the basic philosophy, guess what, everybody? There's God. He's a person. He's infinitely beautiful. He's a nice guy. You know, he, he doesn't have jealousy issues. He doesn't have anger management problems. He's, he's a nice guy, and he will reciprocate with you. I mean, it's all totally logical and reasonable. It's what you would expect God to be. And so you offer your food. Why? It's just, it's just a way of not being a jerk. You know, Krishna is giving you all this wonderful food. Just be a lady or a gentleman. Say thank you. That's all offering is. It's just saying thank you. It's being a civilized human being. That's what it means to offer your food. And so if you think about, but, and, and so in ISKCON, there's some of us who, you know, we're not into rituals and we do certain spiritual practices because they make perfect sense. Krishna has invested all of his potency in his name. Why not? Makes perfect sense. It's, it's ontologically what you'd expect. And so everything, there, there, there is sort of a, a basic practice of bhakti yoga, which is philosophical, which is rational, which makes perfect sense. And then in come the magicians. And it's kind of like, they're sort of like, omnivores of Indian superstition. You know, they just like, you know, what do they say in Italy? They have this gesture. You know, someone, <laughs> if someone is really gullible, they'll eat anything. <laughs> Anyone here from Italy knows what I'm talking about. <laughs> Lambri. Tu <laughs> ricordi. Uh, so anyway, so these tendencies sort of like, you know, hyper piety where you destroy the spiritual science or you replace a mystical science with just magic and devotees who just, you know, full of superstitions and all kinds of little magical things you do to ward off evil spirits. And one of my favorites is covering your right hand when you chant Gayatri. I mean, that, as they say, takes the cake. Because, I mean, think about it. I, I mean, I, I, you probably already heard this so many times, but I mean, I mean, just think about it. First of all, there are all these malevolent beings just sort of flying around the universe. You know, it's, it's a dangerous world, all these little magical beings. And then uh, they somehow or other, they, they want to, they're punya thieves. They want to steal your piety. And so if you just sit down somewhere to chant Gayatri, they know it. I mean, they just know what you're doing because they're everywhere. No magical paranoia here. So they're everywhere. So then when you start to chant Gayatri, they just zoom right in. And they somehow or other, there's this portal where they go through your hand, maybe through your arm into some kind of sort of like, I don't know, magical warehouse where you store all of your pious credits and they just start plundering them. Now, what's interesting about these beings is who are never described in any scripture. They're just, it's a special revelation. So the interesting thing about them is they can penetrate right hands, but not left hands. 
which means they must be kind of like ew, dirty things because they, you know, to your left hand. So, so they penetrate right hands, but they bounce off left hands. They also bounce off any basic fabric. Like, let's say, for example, you have like cotton or silk, they even bounce off, you know, synthetic fabrics. So if you, <laughs> I mean, you got to love this stuff. So if you, so if you cover your hand with any, any basic fabric, you know, they'll just like bounce up. They have the power to, to, to spot you from who knows where in the universe to fly there immediately to enter into your subtle realm, but they bounce off cotton. And they also bounce off left hands, but not right hands. So Harry Potter. Anyway, um, and, and, and there are so many pictures of Prabhupada sort of brazenly chatting Gayatri with his hand exposed. Another one of my favorites is that uh, stitched clothing is polluted. Still waiting to find out the scientific reason. If you go on the altar, you can't wear sewn clothing. One of my favorites. The funny thing is in order not to wear clothing, you walk in your bare feet, which walk over all kinds of you know places. You probably your feet are much dirtier than they'd be if you just put some clean socks on right at the door to the altar. But anyway, you know I don't know if this is just I, I have no idea where that comes from. I heard one you know wonderfully misogynistic explanation because women tend to do the sewing, and so. <laughs> but I mean, for God's sake, how can you? The fact that something becomes polluted because it's sown is um, Hare Krishna. So what you can see is that how easy it is to deviate from Krishna consciousness. You get into magic instead of mysticism. You get into hyper piety, destroy the spiritual science, no rational connection between your endeavor and the results you get. Hey, Rupa, we had a little debate about that. Remember? That was fun. We got to do it. Got to pick another topic and go at it again. So, um, so, th so that's my answer to Ramananda. That um, there is a spiritual science, but most people are not scientists. I mean, for God's sake, when Prabhupada was here, most of his disciples didn't even read his books, or many of them. Prabhupada was always complaining. So how many people that join the Hare Krishna movement are like super scholarly, rational, you know, they want to understand everything scientifically? So Prabhupada thought it was a problem. So there's a spiritual science, but if I am not a qualified scientist, I cannot properly convey the spiritual science. And therefore, you know, I think we should look at the Hare Krishna movement. And I'm speaking as a member, not as an outsider, not as someone who, you know, is, is against the movement. I think we should look at it and, and, you know, do we need a spring cleaning? How much of what goes on in the Hare Krishna movement is pure spiritual science and how much superstition has infiltrated? How much superstition? How much magic? What about the fact that, for example, since I'm now getting really enthusiastic, I get criticized. I mean, there's nothing quite as much fun as criticizing other people. So, I mean, everyone quotes that, everyone quotes that verse in the Bhagavad Gita, that tadvidhi pranipatena, know that spiritual science, 
uh, by approaching, you know, by learning from the, the enlightened souls. What's funny is how many people actually look at the previous verse to see what in the world Krishna's even talking about. Because the, the verse begins in Sanskrit, know that. Actually, it's that, no. Tat, tat is that. Tat vidhi. Vidhi is the imperative, like the word Veda, no. And so the second person singular imperative, vidhi, no, you know. So Krishna begins that verse, 434, by saying, know that. The obvious question is, that's hardly ever asked, well, what is that? What is that? And that is explained in the previous verse, where you'd expect it to be explained. Krishna says something at 4.33, and then at 4.34, he says, know that. So what does he say at 4.33? Shayan Better than, Krishna says, better than worshiping with paraphernalia, such as puja, dravya. Dravya. Dravya means paraphernalia. So Krishna says, better than worshiping through paraphernalia is to worship through knowledge. Knowledge. In other words, and Prabhupada once explained this to me. Actually, a day or two after he made me GBC of Latin America, he just said to me, do not get involved so much in building temples and, and elaborate puja. He said, he said, for the more advanced devotees, there's knowledge. And so he was directly paraphrasing Krishna's own statement. In other words, giving people knowledge in a way they can understand it. Yes, of course, we should give out lots of books. Should we be concerned whether people are able to understand the books? Yeah, we should be concerned. Is the Hare Krishna movement greatly concerned about what percentage of people actually are able to understand the books? No, it's not greatly concerned. So how much does this con spend on elaborate puja and building temples? How much does this con spend on schools? Interesting numbers. Interesting numbers. So, but that's what Krishna says we should know by approaching a spiritual master. We should know that knowledge is more important than ritual. Oh, that doesn't mean that we reject the rituals. I mean, we all love, I hope, to go into a temple and see Krishna, to bow down to Krishna. So, I mean, worshiping the deity is something we all should love and cherish. However, Prabhupada taught us that the reason we do that, the reason we go into the temple is to get inspired to go out and do the most important work, which is spreading knowledge, giving knowledge to the world. It can be done by teaching classes, it can be done by music, right? Clever songs. <laughs> <laughs> and so, but that's what Krishna says we have to learn from the, by approaching a guru, that knowledge is more important than ritual. So there are some questions. Uh, I think uh, my, the Italian living entity there, and then uh, Sankarshana also. 
Thank you. Th thank you very much. That was a that was something. Uh, I have. Um, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Okay. Um, I'm going to read 30 seconds from Aristotle um, Metaphysics, Chapter 4. Uh oh. Okay. Aristotle says there is a science which investigates being as being and the attributes which belong to this in virtue of its own nature. Now, this is not the same as any of the so-called special sciences. For none of these other treats universally of being as being. They cut off a part of being and investigate the attribute of this part. This is what the mathematical sciences, for instance, do. Now, since we are seeking the first principles and the highest causes, clearly, there must be something to which these belong in virtue of its own nature. Is this what Krishna consciousness is? This Krishna consciousness is this science that Aristotle is talking yeah. about? Yeah, I have a, a, few, a few responses. Number one, what you just read shows me more clearly than ever what a great fool Martin Heidegger was. I agree. Yeah, because he actually believes that for thousands of years, no philosopher ever really thought about being. So anyway, so uh, yeah, that's called ontology. What's the nature of existence as existence? And that's what Krishna talks about. Krishna talks, Krishna's actually, Krishna divides uh, being or existence into someone just put a big thing of me. Whoops. Did that change it for everyone or just for me? I can't stand to see big picture. So when you get to be my, when you get to be my age, you'll understand. So um, Krishna says in the second chapter of the Gita, Nasato Vidyate Bhavo, Nabavo Vidyate Sataha. Uh, of the of the asat something which doesn't have um, pure existence, uh, there's no bhava, there's no actual being. Anyway, he used these two words for me. I won't, I won't go into all the technical grammar. But Krishna says there's two kinds of things, things which begin and end and things which don't begin and don't end. That's why, by the way, these people that say that we never had love for Krishna are so foolish, if I may say so, because... They, first of all, among, I mean, among the many parts of Shastra they contradict, they, they also contradict the Bhagavad Gita. Because if we didn't have love for Krishna, and then we develop love for Krishna, and then it goes on forever, that means there are three things instead of two, like Krishna teaches. There, namely, there is a certain state of consciousness which didn't exist, but now exists forever. Krishna says there is no such thing. There are only things that have always existed and things that begin and end. But that's, anyway, that's a separate point. So, yes, Aristotle's saying that we should, and that's what Krishna does. He says that there's my superior nature, my inferior nature, there are souls, and there is matter. And Krishna says that the ultimate nature of everything that exists is that it's part of me. It's part of Krishna. So, therefore, you can, my answer to Aristotle who was a nice guy, I think basically, I would say to Aristotle that ultimately you can't understand being unless you understand Krishna because everything that exists is part of Krishna. 
So, Sankarsana. Can I just ask you curiosity, just one second. On, on Nasato Videte Bhavo, yes. in your literary translation of the Bhagavad Gita, why did you not translate na, uh, uh, literally Nasato? I think I did. No, no, it's na asataha. You translate it literally? Yes, very. Thank you. Let, let me let me see if I can find it real quick. Does anyone have it there? Oh wait, I have a Bhagavad Gita. Here. Next time I, have to, I have to apologize then. Okay. Someone find that's okay. I uh, we still love you. So uh, yeah, Chris, someone finally gave me one of my gitas. I finally got a copy. Let's see, chapter one, that's chapter two. Krishna says, um, 16. 16, verse 16. Yep. Yeah, the unreal has no existence. The unreal is asat, which that's one of the dictionary definitions of asat, unreal. The unreal has no existence. Existence is bhava. The B in the English word B, like to be or not to be, that comes from the Sanskrit bhavati. So, so uh, the unreal has no existence, the real no non-existence, perfectly literal. Thank you. Apologies. Sure. That's okay, no problem. Uh, just send me a pizza. <laughs> just, uh, but uh, sat also means being literally, doesn't it? Sat. Is, is, it, is Sat the present participle of to be? Yes. Yeah, here, uh, just very quickly, since we want to be uh, precise here, the word Sat in this, whoops. Uh, oops, oh, sorry. The word Sat in the Sanskrit dictionary means being. So Asat means non-being. Hmm. Existing, occurring, it can be an adjective. Because that's what a participle is. It's a neuter uh, singular participle, which means that it's a verb acting as an adjective yeah. or a noun. So uh, when I was, so I mean, uh, being, existing, occurring, real, actual, and so on. Being, so I said it's just the opposite. So, Sankarsana. Uh, I, I just put my hand up to flag the other questions, Acharya. We've got Jagannateshwari and Vishwambara next. Then... Oh. Jagannatheshwari, where is she? Go for it, Jagannatheshwari. Hey, how you doing? Good, thank you. Nice to be here. Hare Krishna. Thanks for coming. Actually, it's um, it's my husband who uh, has a question. Oh, what's his name? Vishwambar. Oh, Vishwambar. Hey, Vishwambar. Hare Krishna, Maharaj. <laughs> where, where, where are you guys right now? We're not... Uh, We're at home in UK. Oh, what part? Uh, we stay uh, in Watford. Oh, Watford. Actually, Watford is very close to the fictitious town of Meryton, where Pride and Prejudice took place. Really? Yeah, so it's a Tirtha, right? Right, Sharad <laughs> Yes. So go ahead, Vishambar. Hare Krishna Maharaj, you remember we uh, we used to speak at length when uh, Tamar Krishna Maharaj used to stay in your house. Oh, yes, yes. You speak in Italian. Ah, Italiano, chiaro, andiamo. <laughs> so I, I actually I guess you better ask your question in English. 
That's all right. We'll speak in English so everyone will. Uh... <clears throat> Something came to my mind during your talk. Very interesting talk. And uh, it made a lot of sense because um, everyone, I would say, mostly, mostly mainly intelligent people, academic people, they're very strongly attached to their own perception of science, philosophy, and theory, and also realizations, you know, things that they realize on their own accord. It could be wrong or it could be uh, correct. I was wondering, you mentioned about St. Augustine as well. I mean, I was brought up in a Catholic uh, monastery for 12 years and uh, Francis Monastery. Very interesting. Yeah, so, um, but of course they, their signs, you know, is the other way. It's, they're supposed to be followers of St. Francis, who was actually very friendly to the animals, vegetarian, but actually all the Franciscan monks they they eat meat nowadays. Um, the question is, I've been uh, observing, this is my own observation now uh, in my life, that, uh, you know, looking into the Islamic um, world, you know, it became a many branches, you know, they have the Sufi, anyway, I don't want to get into it. Um, and then even in Christianity, like you said, you know, St. Augustine, he formed his own uh, belief, his own, um, you know, like Paul, you know, he was anti-Christian in the beginning. And then later on, he embraced Christianity and he became the first pope for his own interest uh, to, to start, you know, the, the, uh, the Christianity. He was actually the very first the founder oh, of Catholic. Yeah, Peter, actually, Peter became the first pope. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But Paul, he was actually the... Oh, yeah, Paul, that's a whole story, how Paul created yeah. religion, yeah. He was enemy with uh, of Jesus in the Bible. But anyway, now then, uh, later on, Christianity, after, you know, within 2,000 years, became many branches, like um, Franciscan of Giuseppini. Yeah, yeah, many. So, so the question... Yeah, the question is... You know, I've seen uh, many religions, they've, they've got these strong individuals, you know, and uh, they form their own theory and their own thing. And I've seen even in ISKCON, it's happening the same way. Well, well, there's a big uh, difference, though. There's a big difference. And I do think the, it will, it will, this, we will suffer the same. Uh, not necessarily. But I'll, I'll explain the big difference. The problem, the problem with... Um, let's say the, you could say the doctrinal drift. The problem with Christianity is that Jesus, according to the book of Acts of the apostles, all of his followers were basically illiterate peasants. And that's why, for example, no one actually wrote anything down in the language that Jesus spoke. When the New Testament was finally written, it was written in Greek which is a language Jesus never spoke. It was written a few generations after Jesus. And uh, so that was a big problem. If you look at, I mean, Prabhupada is probably the most documented founder 
of an important new spiritual movement in history. I mean, you know, Prabhupada, he wrote dozens and dozens and dozens of books. We have hundreds and hundreds of hours of his lectures. And so if you look at even Islam, if you look at Islam, all of the sources we have, historical sources on Muhammad and his life, it turns out they come generations after Muhammad. So at the time of Muhammad, it's not the people writing down what he said. In, in, in that sense, we have a big advantage. And, um, and we also have the Bhagavatam. I mean, the Quran, whatever it may be, it's not systematic theology, whatever else it may be. And neither is New Testament. So we have, if you look at, we have the Bhagavatam, which is, um, goes very deeply into advanced theology. And then we have the Acharyas, we have, we have, we have commentaries. So we, if, if you look at Lord Chaitanya, whereas Jesus, according to the New Testament, attracted basically illiterate peasants, at least those are the ones who joined him. If you look at Lord Chaitanya, his early followers were the greatest intellectuals in, in that part of the world at the time. One time I went, to, before I went to Harvard as a student, I went there to give a talk as a sannyasi. And I was, uh, before my program, I was speaking for a while with the chairman of the Harvard Sanskrit department, very nice guy, he was still a prominent scholar. And um, he was going on and on glorifying Rupa Goswami. He was an intellectual giant. He was one of the leading scholars, intellectuals of his day. So if you look at Rupa Goswami, Jiva Goswami, Sanatana Goswami and others, you know, who wrote so many books, Krishnadas Kaviraj, you know, incredible masterpiece. So Lord Chaitanya attracted not illiterate peasants, but the greatest intellectuals of his time. And therefore, not, not only do we have massive documentation of Lord Chaitanya, but we have almost unlimited documentation of Prabhupada. So our historical situation is very different. Now, there are people determined to deviate. Like the people that say, we're never with Krishna, you know, we never have, even though Lord, it's right in the Chaitanya Charitamrita, Nitya Siddha Krishna Prema Sadhya Kabunai, that love for Krishna is eternally a fact. And eternally in our philosophy means it never begins and it never ends. That love of Krishna is, but Shabanadi Shuddha Chite, it's Karyuda, uh, it is awakened by practicing. So Sadhya, is obviously from the same root as the word sadhana. So sadhana means practice. Sadhya means something achieved by practice. And so in other words, sadhya kabunai, so love for Krishna is not something that you create by practicing bhakti yoga. It's already there. It's eternally a fact. You just awaken it, korei udai. And Prabhupada himself, he called his magazine Back to Home, Back to Godhead. The only time in the Bhagavatam where God talks about how we came to this material world, which is Canto 4, text 28, verses 53 and 55, Krishna twice says, you came to this material world because you rejected me. He says it twice. You rejected me. And so we have Krishna saying it. We have Prabhupada saying it. We have Lord Chaitanya saying it. We have all the great Acharyas saying it. And yet there are, you know, these self, uh, you know, imagined geniuses who claim to be in our tradition who have to contradict everything. Hmm. And they come up with all kinds of nonsense explanations like we come from the Tattasta Shakti. We come from marginal energy. 
the obvious absurdity of that is that there is no place called the marginal energy. The marginal energy is not a place. It's a category of energy. How can, you, how can we come from a category? It's like saying that, you know, I am a, uh, I mean, it's, it's just silly. So we have this overwhelming, yeah, there is no such thing as the Tata Sashakti. It's not a place. It's simply a, a, it's a category. And then they say we come from Mahavishnu. Yes, we come from Mahavishnu in between cosmic creations. Krishna never gives that as the explanation of where we ultimately come from. He simply says, like in the case of Narada Muni, that you're in the material world, you're sort of thrashing around for God knows how many millions of years, you know, you need a break. So Krishna lets you come into his body, you know, it's like, get some downtime. But you think about it, I mean, if you think of night and day, and Krishna, Krishna talks about cosmic days and nights in the Bhagavad Gita, because even if, if you've had an active day, you need to rest. You need to rest. You mentally need it. You physically need it. And after struggling with karma for millions of births, you really need a break. And so Krishna, you know, your subtle body needs a break. And so you come into the body of Mahavishnu, you know, some downtime, rest, and then you come out again. And, and so... So all these, uh, but you can see people who are just so anxious to be different and distinguish themselves by saying stupid things. So you know, Prabhupada gave us this very simple philosophy, back to home, back to Godhead. Krishna himself says the same thing in the Bhagavatam. Lord Chaitanya says the same thing. You have to awaken what's already there, your love of Krishna. And yet they can't understand it. So Will there always be people who are determined to deviate? Yes. Will they become the majority Hare Krishna movement? Hopefully not. To bring about something new is uh, nowadays is a fashion. It's cool. Well, it's, yeah, it's been a fashion cool. for a very long time. <laughs> okay, any other questions? If not, uh, any other? I don't see any other hands. There's uh, a couple of others, Acharya. If you still have time, you've been with us for one hour 45 already. Okay. And well, unfortunately, I had a big breakfast. Okay. There's a couple others. Uh, one, the next one from Ananda Hari and Pavani. Oh, good old Ananda Hari and good old Pavani. <laughs> um, I'll, I'll go first. I'll try and just make mine quick because uh, it was from the beginning. I have about five questions, but I'm not going to ask them. But just in the beginning, you spoke very eloquently about the craziness on the side of science and the craziness on the side of religion and uh, you made it very real so i'm just wondering if they fit into the box of mayavadi all of them together like two sides of the same coin and if they would be near vishesha sunyavadi would they be one would be near vishesha the other sunyavadi well what they have in common is that it's just a big group of people that don't accept that there is a supreme personal God. And so the word, the word near Vishesha, I'll explain what that word actually literally means. Vishesha in Sanskrit means distinction. And uh, like, for example, the word Visheshana means an adjective, because that's what adjectives do. It's like, go to the house, which house? The big house, the small house, the red house, the blue house. So adjectives distinguish things. And so vishesha means a distinction. 
and near means without. So near vishesha means you don't make the proper distinctions. And, and the distinctions that have to be made are among the tattvas, which is what Krishna says in the Gita, that those who have seen the truth, they will, he actually says those who have seen tattva. So in other words, if you confuse the three tattvas are Vishnu tattva, Jiva tattva, and Prakriti tattva. So if you think that Krishna's body is material, you're confusing Prakriti with, uh, with Vishnu. If you think that you are your body, you're confusing Jiva tattva with Prakriti tattva. If you think you are God, you're con confusing the Jiva tattva with the Vishnu tattva. So just as Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita, the bona fide teachers, the ones who are tattva darshina, those who have, we translate as seen the truth, but Krishna literally says those who have seen tattva, which means the fundamental categories of real things. And so um, if you can see these, so what these people have in common, the Mayavadis, they, you know, they make category mistakes. They confuse, they get, in fact, they get all three wrong. They think Vishnu is Jiva, they think Jiva is Vishnu, and, and, and they think that Prakriti doesn't really exist. So they get a perfect score, they get everything wrong. And, uh, and then, so yeah, so in, in a sense, all the Apasiddhantas, all the incorrect philosophies, uh, make category mistakes. So with the Christians, the fanatical fundamental Christians who believe God sends people to hell for eternity and the scientists who believe there is no God, there is no uh, morality, there's no anything, would, would they somehow fit into those, into that well, box? I don't know if they're my bodies, they're certainly irrational. They're certainly irrationals. I mean, I mean, Christianity basically, I mean, I don't want to go into that now, but uh, when Jesus was alive, all of his followers, without exception, were Jewish. All the apostles were Jewish. And then for historical reasons I won't go into now, within a generation or two, there were practically no Jews in the Jesus movement, and they were all actually pagans. And so they just paganized his movement. The pagans were very comfortable with monotheism, uh, polytheism, so they just tr basically transformed Christianity into a polytheistic religion. You know, the Trinity. And so, uh, so in, in that sense, it's, yeah, I mean, it's all, anyway, all kinds of category mistakes. Pavani has a question. Hi, hi, hey, Pavani. Hi, I'll ask this quickly as fast as I can put this verbally. Um, you were saying in the beginning about um, science, about how it was, um, um, you know, it, its ground rule is that, that it needs to, uh, you need to be able to measure something, um, but uh, in that sense, it's not possible to understand anything metaphysical. Um, I was just trying to think, like you know, it, unfortunately, where we are, you know, because we are conditioned by this body, the only way we can even understand anything is through gross, you know, with our senses. Um, and even when Krishna is trying to explain about the soul, you know, he explains it can't be cut by weapons or um, wet by water. And, you know, it's the only way we can have a relative understanding what something metaphysical is, because this is all we've got. And so I'm well, thinking... it's, well, in a sense, yes. But 
when we begin to practice Krishna consciousness, then we have experience that confirms it. For example, for example, if you look at, say, Einstein, he came with his theories of relativity, and then it basically it was just a bunch of numbers and symbols. But then when you actually, if, if you know enough about physics, that you can actually read the equations, then you see what it means. And so Krishna may say that, you know, give what's called the via negativa, the, the negative way you say what the soul is not, and then what's left is a soul. But he also gives positive characteristics. He says, it's eternal, it exists forever. And then Krishna says that the, the he talks about how, uh, about knowledge, consciousness, how, you know, the soul manifests through consciousness. So Krishna does make positive statements about it. And then, and, and then, and then Krishna says that, uh, and then we get realization. So we, we directly experience ourselves as souls. Yes. No, the question I wanted to ask is instead of um, doing without the scientific method totally, because it's not going to be able to question, uh, answer these things is, you know, a, like in all science, as you were also saying that the preliminary assumption that they all have to make before they say develop a theory or something is it's it's based on some it's an assumption so maybe if they turned the assumption to something like for example um say if they wanted to study the behavior of a human or their mental illnesses they would put it down to a biological disposition or the environmental cause say uh, what if they turn the assumption to let's you know to be a little bit more open and um, to the idea of say the mind there is such thing as a mind and it's an interplay with the intelligence but that's, but that's already happening yeah that's already happening I think the problem is that many devotees you know if they did go to college or even high school you know as many years ago the world is very different now it's becoming very common that biologists philosophers psychologists neurologists are rejecting materialism so the idea that, uh, you know, that we can understand everything by science, I mean, that's, that's gone. So that, you know, that, that might have been the case, you know, decades ago, people tended to think that way, but not now. It's a very different world now. Yeah, uh, well, yeah, it's true. They're still teaching it to say this is how- Well, that's, you know, but that, that's because what they teach in schools to undergraduates in college or in high school, it's just, you know, it's always 50 years behind. I mean, that's true in every field. It's true in Indology. It's true in biology. I mean, it's, it's notorious that schools tend to be, you know, 30 to 50 years behind the science. Yeah. Okay, you good. don't see any, um, yeah, I suppose, yeah, then this, that kind of science, science method is not really useful to study well no we we, we can i mean there, there, there are many devotees that are actually doing scientific studies that show that you know in terms of brain science or neurology that the chinese Hare krishna has all these beneficial effects there, there are a number of devotee scientists who are working in that area yeah well, that's good that's good enough okay given, given the time perhaps we'll just end with rupa Valas proposed question Hey, Pavani, thank you for your question. Thank you, Acharya Thank you for your answers. Hey, good old Rupa. <laughs> well, actually, I, I just assumed defer to uh, some question. I can write you separately, whatever my... I just, actually, I don't even... I was just going to say, do you think it's fair to say that basically 
the words, even the word science was hijacked by the empiricists. And yeah. in a sense, you know, that they, they hijacked the word because it didn't use science didn't used to mean empiricism. Yeah, that was aimed to be thought of as the only kind of real science. Yeah, that's all political. I mean, the fact that a word comes to mean something, that's just political and cultural. It's not, it's not objective. Yeah. Oh, and I want to do just a very short question on cohesion. What is it? Coherence. Coherentism. Coherentism, yeah. And you were saying that unless um, unless it actually hangs together in some way, but well, how does it, it, it shouldn't how, be it shouldn't be it shouldn't be self-contradictory? Well, so, I mean, but I guess the question is how does it escape being subjective? In other words, like what would we seem re say reasonable? Okay, okay. So let's talk about this. Might not seem reasonable and coherent to me. So then I yeah. Well, no, not really. I mean, we can talk about what it means to be subjective. For example, if you say that um, uh, you're going you're going to London tomorrow, and then you say I'm not going to London tomorrow, that's incoherent. Okay. And so, and so, incoherence means you just you're you're saying things that are that contradict each other. To 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 be coherent doesn't mean what you're saying is true. It just means you're not grossly contradicting yourself. Let there may be some Carson would like to uh he'll pull it together. That's what the word Sankarsana means, by the way. Karsana comes from the same root as Krishna, and it means pulling or plowing, actually, because you pull the plow. And so um, because Krishna is the one who mentally to be attractive, I mean, think of the, the word attraction and the word traction, like a tractor. And so what they have in common is it's pulling. So a tractor pulls and attraction pulls your mind to something. And so, um, so that's why karshana, it means pulling or, or attracting and then sung together like sankirtan. That, that was a joke. He's going to pull things together, sung karshana. If I could put my own self together, I'd be happy to try to. <laughs> All right. Well, give, given, given the time I tried it, I'll I'll email you separately with my question and um. Oh, real quick, maybe just do three minutes. Okay, okay. I'll, I okay. guess in, in invaded culture, you can't say spit it out, right? Because we're not like pro spitting. Okay, I'll make it very quick. Then. <laughs> um, one one of the things that's championed in science is this idea that they're able to falsify hypotheses that are that are wrong, they're not true, and the worry that someone might raise in spiritual practices or processes or someone might criticize the is that a, yeah, you can't falsify it okay um well first of all you can for example if someone claims that allah or jesus or whoever wants me to slaughter all these innocent people i would say we just falsified i mean we didn't falsify necessarily jesus or muhammad but we falsified a particular interpretation of it no, we falsely, we, because it, it's not, we're not talking about chemistry. It's a different science. We're talking about things greater than ourselves. It doesn't have to ape physical science. It doesn't have to look in every regard like physical science. That's not the test. Physical science is not the standard we have to come up to. I, I meant something more along your coherentist line. So for example, um, you sometimes hear people to, told things like this in, in our movement. If, 
if they're feeling unhappy in the process, they might be told, well, you're not chanting enough or you're not sincere enough or you're not doing it right. So there's well, no way to- However, however, what if that's true? What if a person takes that advice and, and becomes more serious about their spiritual life and becomes happy? I mean, obviously, people wouldn't hang around the Hare Krishna movement. I mean, we don't hang around just because of all the uh, incredible personal dealings we find at temples. I mean, you know, attractive as that is, it's not what keeps us in the movement. So, I mean, it, you know, if people were practicing bhakti yoga and um, they weren't feeling so great and someone said, you're not chanting sincerely enough and they chanted more sincerely and nothing happened, guess what? There'd be no one left. Because everyone sometimes has their kind of, you know, their bad days, just like their bad hair days and I guess bad Hari days, right? Like you can have a, <laughs> you can have a bad day in Krishna consciousness. And so if it wasn't a science and every time someone said one devotee said to another, you know, just chant more sincerely and it never worked, there, no one would be left. We'd all be gone. The reason we're not gone is because it does work. I mean, it's the same thing. I mean, you find it, let's say there's some athlete, like some, I'll, I'll, you know, this is England, cricket, there's a cricket player uh, who's in a slump. By the word, by the way, the word baseball is actually mentioned in uh, North Anger Abbey by Jane Austen, the word baseball. But anyway, so it's, it, it was a word in England, you know, hundreds of years ago. But let's say someone is, is a cricket player and they're just, you know, having several bad games and someone says, you got to relax, you got to do this, you got to do that you know, focus on the fundamentals, which is exactly what people say to athletes who are having a slump. And a lot of time it works. It works. I mean, in every field of life, sometimes we're not performing well, we're not happy. And somebody says, you know, count your blessings or go back to basics and this that. And if it works, then that culture continues. If it doesn't work, it doesn't. So how could you have, a, how could you have Vaishnavism going on for thousands of years if it's all just fake and you know everyone's telling everyone else, no, just you know, be a little more serious, try to be more sincere, and it never works because there's no Krishna. So it's just kind of preposterous. It's just, it's, it's just these objections are really kind of just someone's trying way too hard uh, you know, to be a jerk. Because actually, yeah, so it, it, it does work. And I mean, even in science, I mean, what about the fact that a full 50%, 5-0, of scientific, in quotes, experiments published in refereed professional journals cannot be duplicated. <laughs> I mean, the point is, and why? Because, you know, I mean, science is now a trillion dollar industry. So people go for the gusto, which is, you know, the money. There is a massive amount of cheating and corruption in science. There are a huge amount of so-called scientific experiments that can't be duplicated. So let's not talk about science as some squeaky clean little community of sincere people just looking for the truth without prejudices. That's a bunch of, well, I can't say BS because that's antiseptic, right? So, I mean, cheating in science is very famous. Also, that famous book, I mean, I mean this, this sterling picture you're, of science you're giving has very little to do with reality. 
It has very little to do with the academic study of science. That book, you know, The Nature of Scientific Revolutions, Thomas Kuhn proved, and that's like, what, 60 years ago or something? That actually scientists tend to be irrational. And this, this is a book which is, you know, one of the landmark books in philosophy of science. They have a certain worldview, like let's say it's Copernican cosmology or astronomy. There was a nice, uh, not Copernican, I meant uh, Ptolemy. There was a guy named Ptolemy, who, by the way, it's a Greek name, and because he was one of the descendants of, the, of Alexander the Great, who conquered Egypt. So he was a ruler of Egypt, and he worked out this system of astronomy to explain why, you know, by naked eye astronomy, you could say, or maybe at a telescope, that the planets move in certain ways, and how do you explain that? Because that was pre-Newton. People didn't understand, you know, laws of gravity and all that. And so he came up with this whole thing of epicycles, the planets move around in little circles, you know, as they're moving in bigger circles around the sun or something. He worked out this ingenious system as a work of genius. And that was official scientific astronomy for about a thousand years. I mean, and every scientist in Europe, in every university in Europe, taught Ptolemaic astronomy. Actually, he was 100 AD. It was like for one and a half thousand years. One and a half thousand years, every scientist in Europe taught that. Every school taught that. One little problem. It was wrong. It was wrong. It was actually a, a geocentric model. And so you can, I mean, the, the history of science, so what happened is, when uh, Copernicus made his big breakthrough, one of the reasons, by the way, Copernicus came up with, it's interesting, the reason, one of the main reasons Copernicus came up with the heliocentric model, the plans go around the sun, is because he was religious. He, he was religious, he was a Christian, and he also, because a lot of Christians were really into Plato, because he talks about the spiritual realm and the material realm and all that. And so Plato talks a lot about the sun as being the symbol of God. So if the sun is like the, you know, it's like the great light of our world. And in Plato, the sun is like, you know, it's a symbol of God. Then why not God in the center of the system? As in heliocentric. So if you study the real history of science, I mean, there have been hundreds of theories that every scientist accepted that were taught in every university. It just turned out to be wrong. And what, and, and what happened is when Copernicus came up with his new model, and then, of course, then the church was in trouble because, the, and, and Galileo talked about that, the church was claiming that it not only told you how to go to heaven, but the church told you how the heavens go. In other words, astronomy. And the church was committed, totally committed with all their authority to Ptolemy. So it was a crisis. So they, then Descartes came up with an alternative. But then, turned, they, but then they made progress beyond Descartes, but they wouldn't allow anyone to teach it. So even after Newton, you couldn't teach the latest science in the universities. So, and, and what, and what um, Thomas Kuhn showed is that you have, that science is generational. You have a generation of scientists who learned certain theories, who passed tests, who got their jobs, who have taught this science to all their students. 
if they suddenly say, okay, now there's a better theory, their whole life is meaningless. It means that everything they studied, everything they taught, everything they told other people turns out to be wrong. And on a level of human psychology, they can't deal with it. It's what they used to call in 60s, you know, the big hippie thing, freak out. You know, they, they, they can't do it. And so what happens is they continue to teach the old thing. They're not just these objective, open-minded people following the facts, wherever they lead. No, not at all. They die out. They literally die. And a new generation of scientists comes along, takes all the positions in the universities and teaches what they want. And so the main reason, one of the main ways science is modernized is by people dying and being replaced by younger people who have different ideas. So this image of uh, you know, the scientists as the sort of the consummate enlightenment figure, just the facts, just following the trail of the facts, what does the math say? No personal desires, open to all possibilities. This is, this is a joke. I mean, that is such a stupidly romanticized, historically absurd depiction of science. In fact, nowadays, they're actually having trouble finding enough people to do theoretical quantum physics. Why? Because you can make so much more money by working for some, I don't know, you know, big makeup company or something, you know, Revlon or something. You can, if you, I mean, or, or working, you know, working as a consultant, some big corporation or science. And so, I mean, who wants to do theoretical quantum physics for the love of knowledge when you could make some real money? So the way you presented science is just like it's absurd in terms of their motivations, in terms of the certainty of their conclusions, in terms of their methodology. It's all like a big joke. It's like, it's just like the old church glorifying itself. In fact, people that do sociology of knowledge, sociology of knowledge means what are the sociological pressures and factors or psychological pressures by which groups of human beings come to hold certain opinions and reject other opinions. And that field is called the sociology of knowledge. And I remember when I attended a conference, a BI conference in, in actually in Bombay, as it was in 1985, um, they had one very prominent scholar from a very prestigious university that said that if you study the sociology and the psychology of knowledge transmission, among academic materialistic scholars, it is exactly parallel to a church. Structurally, it's a church. They have high priests, they excommunicate people, they take things on blind faith because if you don't believe that you can't be in the church. Sociologically, structurally, the so-called science and, and even just general academic community is a church from the sociological and psychological point of view. So let's come back to the real world and not hold Krishna consciousness to a standard which, is, which science does not hold itself to. Thank you, Sharif. Fully satisfied. Yeah, and as you know, philosophical materialism is not science, it's a metaphysical philosophy and a bad one.
because it has a pitifully small amount of explanatory power. Sure. So, so thank you all very much. It's been a pleasure. Fantastic. On behalf of everyone here, Charlie, we want to thank you for spending more than two hours with us. Thank you very much, even though I asked for much thank less. That, that was gracious. And um, before any, everyone goes, I just thought I would quickly, if you're interested, um, please contact me or Brinda or Ramananda if you want to um, get your hands on a copy of one of Acharyadev's books. And stay tuned as well. I've got them on the screen here, these three, but you can contact me or Brinda or Ramananda if you want to find out more. We can help you out. And uh, apart from that, um, stay tuned because Charitiv, uh is nearing the completion of the first volume of. No, it's complete. It's been completed. It's completed. So that's going to be. It has, a, it has a blockbuster introduction also, in which I take on all the topics like if there was a, if the Mahabharata describes real history, where where are all the archaeological remains in India? I explain all that actually. I, I, and, I heard. Huh? Yeah, you read it. And um, and also how old, like like what evidence do we have that Krishna actually appeared 5,000 years ago? And actually, uh, we do have evidence. We have uh, there, 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 we have archaeoastronomical evidence and uh, archaeological evidence. But anyway, so that's all in the book and a lot of other fun things. I, I had a sneak peek of that, and I can vouch that it's a gripping read, that introduction. So... Uh, Acharya, I don't want to keep you any longer. Thank you for coming and thank you everyone else for joining. And uh, maybe we'll be able to convince you to come again soon, Acharya. Please, sure, thanks, please. Nice to see everybody. Acharya, Acharya. 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 Acharya, we're, we're, we're um, calling from Wicklow and we have a senior godbrother, Gopi Gita Prabhu and Srivatsa, also from Wicklow in Ireland who've been here through the whole thing. So it's just nice to see oh, them. Oh, we'll offer them my... Uh... They're, they're there. They're, they're under Sandra da Silva. So. Oh, da Silva. So, Let me, I can track so, them so down. Gita served in Inishrat in Ireland for many years. And, uh, oh, there you are, Sandra da Silva. That's Gopi Gita and Srivatsa. Hey, thank you for, thank you for coming. <laughs> That's a Portuguese name, isn't it? Sandra da Silva? You have to turn the speaker on. She thought so. They're from, uh, from Brazil. Yeah, yeah. We joined the movement in uh, Rio de Janeiro. Ah, Cariocas, the Gemma. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly. Yeah.